The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. It's always good to be with the Lord's people on the Lord's Day. I'm happy that you are here and have gathered to worship grateful for those who are tuning in to us through our, our website as well. know that still we have many who are uh, uncomfortable or unable to be with us still during these, these days of COVID-19 and are tuning in. And we, we want you to know we, we love you. You're, you're part of this family and we're glad that you are tuning in and worshiping with us and singing in your home and studying God's word with us together. Before I read our text this morning, uh, you, you may have noticed some folks in uh, different clothing this morning that have gathered. It's not a Coast Guard invasion of any sort this morning, but these are some of my colleagues from uh, the Navy Chaplain Corps who serve the U.S. Coast Guard at the moment. We, our unit has some training this week, Monday through Thursday here in Charleston, so the whole unit is coming, but uh, these uh, wonderful chaplains have come early to be a part of worship with us this morning. Some of you may recognize uh, Chaplain Ron Pettigrew. If you were here, I don't know, a year and a half or so ago, he visited us uh, with, and was with us, worshiped with us. Back then he was Commander Pettigrew. These days he's Captain Pettigrew. So um, uh, he is back with us. It's a joy to have you with us, sir. Always glad to have you worship with us. And uh, Chaplain Ben Garris lives up in the great state of North Carolina, another good uh, southern minister who's here with us this morning as well. Ben, it's a, pl- a privilege to have you wor- worshiping with us. And uh, thank you. So when you're a pastor and you have other pastors show up, it's kind of like having family show up that, uh, that isn't normally here. The pressure, you know, is a little different. You feel like, you know, if you... Uh, if you choke, you're going to hear about it the rest of your life. So uh, the Lord help us, right? Uh, if you would, let's turn our attention to Luke chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at verses uh, uh, 58 and following this morning down through verse 80. Actually, we won't get to verse 80. We'll stop at verse 67. Let's just pick up with verse uh, 57 and uh, read to 67 for our reading this morning. Here's the word of the Lord. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was open, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we've come into your house and we've gathered in your name to worship you. We are your people. 
we've gathered as your body to sing, to pray, to study your word. Lord, we, we recognize that we do this in the midst of a culture in turmoil. Uh, we've all watched this week as, as, as so many things have happened and so many voices have spoken and so much is being said and done all around us that, that quite frankly, Lord, it can be confusing. It can be hard to process. We can find ourselves watching current events and, 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 and we can find fear generated in our hearts. And, and Lord, you haven't called us to be people of fear, but people of courage and faith. And so as we gather uh, together this morning and we look to your word, we, we need you to be our vision. We need your voice to be the voice that speaks above the crowd. We need to have ears only for what you have to say because what you have to say is true. It's true today, it's been true forever, and it will be true always. Lord, help us to anchor our hearts and our thoughts and our minds and our emotions and the bedrock of your truth. You're a good God, a God who loves his people and a God who cares for his people, a God who delivers his people. And this morning, we'll see more about your character, but we pray that, it, that you would open our eyes to behold who you are, that you would calm our fears, that you would anchor our hearts in you. Speak to us, O Lord, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we've sort of, uh, if you've come this morning and you weren't with us last week, we've sort of, you've sort of come uh, into part two of what should have been a one-week sermon. I apologize up front for that. It's kind of like getting the second half of a to-be-continued television show, right? It's, it's, it's not much fun, but uh, in order to, to help you this morning, I, I do want you to flip sort of back in your Bible to the beginning of Luke's Gospel, uh, back to verse 5 through 7, because what we have in the beginning of the Gospels, we start making our way through, through Luke, we have the story of the birth of Jesus and the story of the birth of John the Baptist that Luke gives us, but he doesn't give them both to a sort of in linear fashion, one after the other. He weaves the two together. And so we are looking at the birth of John the Baptist here, uh, and we see the first part of that. We sort of did the bulk of this last week, verses 5 uh, and following. And then he moves on to talk about Mary and the angel's visit to Mary and the birth of Jesus begins to become the narration. And then he picks back up where we did this morning in verse 57 with, again, the remainder of the story of the birth of John the Baptist. And so we're taking those two chunks, smashing them together, and doing two sermons. Does that make sense? That's what we're doing. I hope that's all right with you because I don't have anything else prepared. So that's what we're doing. But in case you weren't here with us, I just want to rewind a little bit and give you the first part of the story sort of in a flyby fashion. We were told at the beginning of Luke's gospel in this first section that in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth and they were both righteous and they both walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord and they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. We were introduced to this, this priest, priestly couple uh, somewhere in Israel that has grown old together serving the Lord but has, has, has been faithful in their service to him but they've struggled their whole lives with infertility. They've tried and tried to have children and yet the Lord has not blessed them with children. And as we look through this beginning of the narrative, we, we sort of got ourselves caught up in the narrative of the story because Luke is a wonderful storyteller and he draws us in to the lives of this couple and the details of what's happening in their life during this season. 
But really behind the scenes, what Luke wants us to understand and what he wants us to see is to see behind Zechariah and to see behind Elizabeth and to see behind John the Baptist and to recognize that all of these events are taking place in, in, against the, the backdrop of God's redemptive plan in all of history. And we're, we're, we're meant to see a little bit about who God is in the way he works with this couple. And so that's how we've sort of shaped the first part of this sermon, and we'll finish it this week um, uh, the same way. So we saw last week a couple of things about God in this narrative with Zechariah and Elizabeth. We saw that God works. He's a God who works even when we don't see that he's working. We were told that all of this happens in the days of King Herod, and we talked a lot about that last week. But suffice it to say today that this was a dark time in Israel's history. It was a dark, dark time. There, there, there was corruption and there was darkness in the culture. The, the king was a murderous lunatic. The religious leadership was corrupt and self-serving. Uh, God had not sent a prophet to Israel in over 400 years, so God's voice had gone silent. It was dark, dark days for Israel. And yet we find, as Luke introduces us to this story, that even though it was dark all around, and from the human perspective, it looked like God was out to lunch, the reality is God was deeply at work, working his plan from all eternity to redeem humankind, to redeem those who would trust in the Lord Jesus through all of these circumstances. So even when it's dark, and even though we can't see God's work, he's working, and he's doing his thing. He's working his plan. He's sovereign over everything that's happening around us. And so we saw that he was working in the days of Herod, and he was working in this priest who was righteous. And we saw that he was uh, working in his wife, this, this older lady, Elizabeth, who's barren and who's had no child. And, and God is working all of these things out, but nobody really understands what's happening in the moment. But we also saw that he's not just a God who works, but he's one who hears and remembers because Zechariah working in the temple on a normal day, well, it's sort of normal. He's working in the temple. It's abnormal in the sense that he's got his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go and offer incense in the inner uh, holy place of the temple. Uh, as a priest, it was his Super Bowl. It was his big day. It was his once-in-a-lifetime chance. And he goes in and, and enjoying the moment, no doubt, with some level of anxious uh, or nervous anxiety, he offers his incense. And out of nowhere, an angel appears and terrifies him, just scares him out of his wits. And this angel speaks to him, and he says to him some things. He says, listen, Zechariah, there's some things you need to understand. God has heard your prayer. He's heard your prayer. All these things you've been praying, prayers for a child, prayers for the redemption of Israel, God has heard those things. Your prayers have not bounced off the ceiling. Even though he hasn't answered in the way that you've asked up to this point, he's been listening, and he's heard you, and he's remembered those things. And now he's planning to act. He's going to give you a son. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to, is going to conceive, and she's going to bear you a child, and you're going to give him the name John. Give him the name John. What a, what a staggering thing to, to be told, right? Uh, as, a, as a priest in the temple from an angel who's terrified you. The angel says, Zechariah, God's heard you, God's remembered, and God has come to deliver. He's made promises in the Old Testament, and through your son and the one he's preparing the way for, all of the promises of the Old Testament are going to be yes and amen and completed in full. This is a big deal that's happening, Zechariah. It's bigger than you. This is all bigger than you. Because God is a God who delivers what he promises. 
and we pick up with the narrative there. That's sort of where we, where we uh, sort of left off that last week. And, and we need to see a couple more things about God because the story isn't complete. We need to see that God not only is a God who hears and remembers and delivers, but he's a God who disciplines. This is something that Zechariah is going to learn in a, in a really powerful sort of a way, that God is a God who disciplines. And we begin in verse 18, uh, sort of catching up this piece. And Zechariah says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which were fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when the time of service ended, he went back to his home. It's really remarkable how Zechariah responds to this angelic visit, right? He doesn't fall on his face and worship the Lord. He doesn't do any of that. His heart is instead filled with, with doubt. It's filled with doubt and question. Maybe it's been so long since he's heard from the Lord. Maybe it just, he just can't believe it in the moment. Maybe to him, from a human perspective, the barriers to this being fulfilled just seemed too steep. And he wondered, can God really do this? Is this really gonna happen? And so with a doubting heart, he asks for a sign. He says, ah, uh, angel, how do I know this is gonna happen? How do I know that this is gonna happen? And he feels the need, obviously, to point out his age to the angel. You notice that, right? And his wife's age. I mean, it's as though he's saying, hey, you know, angel, are you not paying attention? Have you, have you taken a good look at me? Have you checked out the gray in the hair? And by the way, have you, have you seen Elizabeth lately? It's not like she's exactly in the prime for childbearing years, right? In case you haven't noticed, those days have come and gone. Angel, you're, you're about 20, 30 years too late on this one. You see, the language indicates that they were at least over the age of 60. So somewhere, if you're here in the room and you're over the age of 60, well, I better not do that. I was going to ask you to raise your hand. But I realize, you know, that, that, that may be touchy for some of you. And it may tempt you to lie. And we don't want to do that in the church. Okay, so you understand, though. Even in our days, with the technology we have, uh, a 60-year-old, someone over 60 in their senior citizen years bearing a child seems a bit out of the ordinary. And Zechariah doubts that this can come true. His point in asking that and pointing those things out is to simply point out this seems physically impossible. From a human perspective, there's no category in his mind for how his 60-something-year-old wife is going to conceive and go through pregnancy and give birth to a son. He can't figure this out in purely human terms. He's looking solely at the barriers, and he has no sense for the divine action that's going on in all of this. We want to just kind of thump him on the forehead and say, Zechariah, it's an angel talking to you, man. He still doesn't understand that what's going on is bigger than him. God, I'm old. She's old. How are we going to have a baby? How is she going to be pregnant? How is all this going to happen? It's just a purely human viewpoint. He doesn't understand that God is doing something that's remarkably miraculous in a much bigger sense in the whole sweep of human history. And his part is a small part. Yes, God is going to work this miracle, but the miracle of 
causing a, an, an elderly woman to get pregnant and give birth is nothing compared to the miracle that's going to take place in the coming of the Messiah who will die for the sins of the world. But Zechariah doesn't see this yet. He doesn't see it. He doesn't understand that God is not limited by his age, nor is God limited by Elizabeth's barrenness all these years. And so Gabriel speaks to him, and he gives him a stunning rebuke. Did you notice the things that Gabriel said? He really says three things to him. He says, I am Gabriel. Hey, man, wake up. Don't you know who I am? You're not just dealing with any old person here. I, I'm Gabriel. I'm an angel of the Lord. What more proof do you need? Uh, Zechariah's I am old is met with Gabriel's I am Gabriel. You're old, and I'm Gabriel. Do you see it, guys? I'm Gabriel. You're not talking to just anybody here. I'm the angel of the Lord. He says, I stand in the presence of God. I didn't just wander down the street. I didn't just roll in. It's not like I was, you know, it's not like I was just hanging out in Jerusalem somewhere and decided to stop by for a visit, man. I'm not some phony baloney, you know, uh, uh, false prophet who's coming here to, to, to trick you. I'm not bringing rumors. I'm not bringing you secondhand information. I came from heaven from the very direct presence of the Lord straight to you. This message has not been lost in translation. I came from the presence of God himself. And I was sent to bring you this message. I wasn't just in the neighborhood. I wasn't on my way to, to Walmart and decided to stop by and tell you what I heard, the gossip around town. God himself sent me to you to deliver this message. And you need more. You want a sign? You got it. Here's your sign. That reminded me of the comedian. What was his name? Do you remember the guy? Those of you who are a little older, maybe those of you 16 and above. Bill... Bill Ingvall, he used to say, here's your sign. You remember that guy? Okay, is it just me? Well, here's your sign, Zechariah. Here's your sign. You're going to be silent and unable to speak. You're going to be silent and unable to speak. You're going to just be mute until all this comes to, 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 to fruition. We find out later in the narrative that not only is he mute, but he's deaf as well. We see that in the later part of the text that we read this morning. Not only can he not, can he not speak, but he can't hear. And the angel is saying to him, you know, Zechariah, since you've spoken foolish and faithless words, I'm just going to shut your mouth for a while and give you some time to think about it. How about nine or ten months? And this is going to pose a big problem for Zechariah in a lot of ways. But it's going to pose a problem for him almost immediately because as soon as he finishes what he's doing in the temple in her court, he's supposed to walk outside and, and pronounce a blessing on the crowd that's gathered. Problematic when you can't speak. We'll see that, that in a moment. Let's maybe stop and think for a moment, though. How would our lives be different if every time we spoke foolish and faithless words, the Lord just shut our mouth for a while? right? Think about that for a moment. What if every time you said something foolish and faithless, the Lord just said, all right, I'm going to just turn your mouth off for a while. Let you think about that. See if we can improve that a little bit. How would, how would life be different? Would our lives be different? Do you think if that happened in reality to all of us all the time? I bet it would. My life would be different. I think we'd probably all be better off, wouldn't we? We'd all be better off. 
I bet you we would certainly consider our words much more carefully before we ever spoke, wouldn't we? I bet you we'd learn, you know, pretty quickly that it pays to do our thinking before we speak rather than to have God give us mandatory time to think on the backside. Well, that's what he does for Zechariah. You want a, you want a sign? Here's your sign. I'm just going to close your mouth for a while. It's not just his words that are a problem, though. The real issue is his doubting and unbelieving heart, isn't it? That's the issue. I mean, the, uh, the Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks, right? So he's speaking foolish and faithless words, but that's because there's a problem going on in his heart. And the problem going on in his heart is that he, he's doubting God. He doesn't believe. The, the God has delivered his word in a very drastic manner to him, and he just simply cannot believe it. It's something ironic about the priest of the Lord who's been praying inside the temple doesn't seem to believe God can do what he's actually been praying for. And yet that's the reality. He can't believe it. He wants more. My friends, when God speaks, that's it. There isn't anything more. The only issue is belief or unbelief. You don't need anything else. When God says it, that's it. That's the end of the story. Because when he says it, the matter is finished. There's no debate. There's nothing else that's needed. When we have the word of the Lord, we have everything we need. And Zechariah learns this in a very stunning sort of a way. He comes under the discipline of the Lord. Zechariah, your mouth is going to be shut for a while. And if God is going to discipline a faithful righteous priest when he disobeys and has a doubting heart fails to trust his word you and I can expect the same that God's consistent in his character he's a God who disciplines those he loves it is a theme all throughout the Bible you could go back in the old in the Old Testament you can see example after example how God disciplines those he loves you remember Israel on the edge of the promised land and, and they're about to go in and they send spies into the land to spy out to see if the land is exactly the way the Lord has promised. And you remember the spies come back and they deliver a message. Yes, everything is exactly the way God had described it would be. And they all go on to say, but there's a problem. There's giant people there. And we seem like grasshoppers compared to them. And I think if we go in, they're going to squash us like bugs. And the people did what? They had what God had told them what was going to happen. He had promised them all that they needed. He had spoken. It was done. But they responded with a doubting heart and unbelief. And so God says, okay, you don't believe me? You don't trust me? Let's make a, let's make a left-hand turn out into the desert for about 40 years and think about it. Let's let this whole generation die off. And let's see if we can come back to this same place later and get this thing right. I think of Jonah, the prophet of the Old Testament. Do you remember Jonah? God comes to Jonah and he says, Jonah, I've got a mission for you. You're to go to Nineveh and you're to preach to the pagan nation. And Jonah does what every good prophet does, right? He smartly hops on a boat and he takes off in the opposite direction. Nope, not doing it, God. It's no problem for God when we disobey. You understand this, right? It doesn't change God's plan. It doesn't change his work. It doesn't, plan, it doesn't change what he's intending to do. He just simply hurls a storm at Jonah, has him thrown overboard, and then has a f giant fish swallow him. It's Jonah, let me give you some time to think about this for a little while. 
I'm going to remove you from this situation and let you, you know, sort of ponder the, the reality that I've spoken to you. Do you believe or do you not believe? Are you going to obey or are you not going to obey? Here's some disciplinary time for you, Jonah, to understand that I mean business when I give you my word. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and following says this, the writer of Proverbs, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Did you hear that, friends? Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Listen, God's discipline is an expression of God's love. God loves us, and so he brings discipline into our life to reorient us when we have a disbelieving heart and when we're disobedient. His, his discipline is geared toward uh, reorienting our life toward faithfulness and obedience to him. He doesn't allow us to continue to run off in lawlessness and disobedience. Like a loving father comes along his child. He brings pain into our life to redirect us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says this, for the, for, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Can we all get an amen to that one? It does, doesn't it? Nobody enjoys discipline. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. You see, God's discipline is not only an expression of his love, but it's meant to be instructive. It's meant to teach us. It's meant to build into us the fruit of righteousness. That's exactly what happened to Israel, at least for a time, after wandering in the desert for 40 years. It's precisely what happened to, to Jonah to some degree after he spent some time in the belly of the fish. And it's going to be, we're going to see, it's precisely what happens to Zechariah at the end of nine or ten months. God's discipline is meant to teach us. It's meant to teach us faith. It's meant to teach us to trust him. So he brings pain into our life when we're disbelieving and when we're disobedient. And he, and he just puts us over in time out for a little while. You thought that was a modern American disciplinary tactic, time out. God's been a master of that one for a long time. The Lord disciplines. And Zechariah realizes this discipline. It's, it's clear and it's immediate in his life. And it has immediate consequences, we see in verse 22. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. So this, is, this had to be one of those funny scenes from life in the Bible, right? Can you imagine the priest coming out? The, the crowds gathered at worship. It would be like the pastor coming up this morning and trying to preach and he's mute. I mean, you can see Zechariah waving his hands and trying to do what he can do to communicate to the people some sort of a blessing. It had to have been the most bizarre thing you could imagine, trying to play charades. Zechariah has just heard the most incredible news imaginable. After four centuries of God's silence, he's about to break his silence. And he's gonna do it through a son that's given through his wife, Elizabeth, but that son is going to be the one who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah who Israel has been longing for for generations. Zechariah has just received the best news that anyone has heard in centuries, and he can't tell a soul about it. You ever known something and you can't tell anybody? You have to hold it in? Oh, man, he's got to hold this in for a long time. He can't tell anybody part of the discipline of the Lord. But God's not just a God who disciplines. He's a God who blesses. 
Because we're told in verse 24, after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived. And down in verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. Our God is not just a God who's about discipline. He's a God who's about blessing as well, isn't he? He's a God who blesses. He blessed this sweet couple. He blesses her with a conception. He doesn't tell us how long, Luke doesn't, how long it was after this angelic visit that Elizabeth conceives. We're just told that she does. And I'm kind of wondering, after all this goes down in the temple, do you think Zechariah comes home and tells, and you can't tell Elizabeth anything. Do you think he communicates in some way what happened? Or do you think he just waits to see if it's going to play out? What do you think? What would you do? I don't know. Luke doesn't tell us what he does. In any case, what we're told is Elizabeth, this senior citizen wife of his, turns up pregnant. Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine the fear in her heart? And she gets up and starts saying, you know, I don't feel quite right today. My food doesn't taste quite right. Something isn't the same. And things begin to develop, and she realizes she is has conceived. Don't you know that this woman reflected for those nine months over all those years of infertility? Don't you know that she reflected during this time on all those prayers for a child for her earlier in her life? And here, at the ripe old age of her 60s, the Lord has miraculously given her the ability to conceive and to bear a child. What a blessing from the Lord. I'm sure she reflected on all of that, all the prayers and all of the hopes that probably by this point in her life had, had, had all hope had seemed lost. And yet God isn't bound by such things. You'll notice it's not just what God gives her that's a blessing, it's what God takes away. We're told from the, her own lips, she says, he's taken away my reproach among the people. I mentioned this last week, but in that culture to be childless for a woman was seen as a, as a curse. You were, you were looked at by the culture as, as defective. You must be some sort of a rotten sinner for God to judge you in such a harsh fashion by closing your womb. She's lived with that stigma her whole life. As a priest's wife, she's lived with the reproach and the shame and she's carried it for decades and it's been painful and at her age it's become her identity. And in this conception and birth, she understands, God, not only have you blessed me by giving me a child, but you've blessed me by removing this reproach. You've removed it. It's what you've taken away. You're, you're showing the whole world what I've known to be true all along, that I'm not a rotten, unrighteous woman, that I'm a righteous woman who loves you. My spiritual integrity is being vindicated, is what she's saying publicly. Oh, what a blessing from the Lord. We're told she chooses to stay, held, to stay hidden for a while. I mean, after all, who are you going to tell that story to? Hey, guess what? I'm pregnant. You? Are you sure? Seems like she stays hidden for about five months until it's clear that she's obviously pregnant. But she bears a child, we're told. God blesses her not just with the conception, but he, he blesses her with a, a healthy birth. And, and you know, she, she's, she gives birth, we're told, and she gives birth to a son. You know, there's no ultrasound in their day, right? So you, you can imagine that they're all waiting with anxious anticipation to see, is this a boy or a girl? And they find out it's a boy, just like God had said. 
And childbirth was dangerous in that, in that time, even for young women. And so for Elizabeth to be able to carry this child to term and to be able to, to give birth and bear a son, God's promise delivered by the angel has become a reality and is a remarkable blessing from the Lord. God blesses his people who are righteous and are faithful to him. He doesn't always bless us in the way we want to. He doesn't always bless us in the time that we'd like to be blessed. But he's a God who blesses his people because he loves them. It's not long before controversy erupts in the family, isn't it? We saw that in the, in the story. It's just eight days. It only takes eight days. They go to, to circumcise the child. It was appointed on the eighth day you circumcised, and it had become customary to, to name the child on the eighth day at the circumcision. And this was a community project. The family and, and close associates would come and, and gather and be a part of this. It wasn't the individualistic sort of a, a deal like it is in our culture. And so this takes place on, on the eighth day, and it's clear that the, the, the family doesn't understand all the dynamics of what the angel has said because the, the, the baby is born and the family has already assumed that this is going to be Zechariah Jr., right? Little Zechariah II. Because that's what you normally did. You named a child after normally the grandfather, but sometimes the father. In this case, because of the unique circumstances and because it being really their only hope for a child, it probably seemed appropriate just to call, and natural to call the child Zechariah, to keep Zechariah's line going and his name going and his lineage going. But Elizabeth puts her foot down. She says, no, no, no. He's going to be called John. He's going to be called John. Now, this would have been... Absolutely bizarre to everyone. It was completely unconventional. It, it went against tradition. And the family that's gathered is absolutely shocked. And they just outright protest this action by Elizabeth. Now, I, I know a lot of you and some of you are families. And I, I know that none of you have families that would ever sort of protest any of your decisions, right? You've never experienced that before. That, that the Lord leads you in a direction or calls you to lead in a direction and the family protests. You've never had that happen before, right? Well, Zechariah and Elizabeth had that happen. And the family isn't, they're not satisfied with Elizabeth saying this. No, this is, this is not good. So they go over her head and, and try to appeal to Zechariah. Now we don't know how aware Zechariah is of the conversation, being that he can't hear and that he can't speak. And so they go to him and, and, and they, they try to raise this issue with him. Now, what a scene this must have been. It says they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. They're trying to do some sort of sign language to communicate to him, hey, she's trying to call this kid John. We think that the pregnancy's gotten to her head. Well, Zechariah, I don't know. Zechariah's had about nine or ten months to think about believing God and obeying, right? And so he's not leaving this one up to chance. He's no fool. No more faithless and foolish words coming out from him, even by a pen. And so he asks for a pen and, and something to write with. Not a bic, but you understand my point, right? He, under, he asks for a writing utensil, and he ends this, con this, this controversy absolutely emphatically. He writes it in very emphatic terms. The first word that he writes is John is his name. John. His name is John. He doesn't say, well, well, well let's, just, let's just talk about this for a bit. We're thinking about calling the kid John. No, no. He says, his name is John. It's done. It's done. 
End of discussion. His name is John. Well, nine or ten months of silence has done Zechariah some good, hasn't it? It's done him some good. It's done him some good. The name John means God is merciful. God is merciful. This whole story of Zechariah and Elizabeth has been wrapped in God's mercy, hasn't it? God is merciful to this barren couple. He's merciful to this righteous priest and his wife. God is merciful to Zechariah in the midst of his doubt and his unbelief. He's being merciful to the entire world through the birth of this, of this little boy who's going to be a key figure in God's plan of redemption, who's paving the way for the Messiah to come, who's, who's the Messiah who's coming to redeem his people. God is being merciful to the world in all of this. His mercy is about to be on display unlike anything the world's ever seen. Luke is telling us the story of redemption through the names of these people. You may remember from last week, Zechariah means God is, excuse me, means God remembers. God remembers. Elizabeth means God is faithful. God is faithful. John means God is merciful. And the name Jesus means God saves. And you put that all together and you get a picture of the story that there's a faithful God who shows mercy to sinners by remembering his promise to save. We get that just from the names of the people. That's what this is all about. It's not about Zechariah and Elizabeth and John. It's about a faithful God who shows mercy to sinners, who remembers his promise to save. God blesses by being merciful. What Zechariah and Elizabeth needed was mercy. By the way, it's also what you and I and the whole world around us needs. We need the mercy of God, don't we? We need the mercy of God. I know you watched this week at things that took place in our culture, particularly in Washington, D.C., and I'm sure you probably saw, watched with the same kind of righteous indignation that I did in disbelief as, as uh, absolute lawlessness took place. A chaos and foolishness. People absolutely disregarding any sense for authority and any sense for the law, and busting into our Capitol building and vandalizing the place and threatening those who are inside, just running rampant. It's a sad and, t and terrible scene. Did you see it? And I'm sure in your heart it resonated similar to mine. It, it causes us to, to fill up with anger disbelief at just, I think at just the, the abject lawlessness of it all. I mean, that, that people would, 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 would do such a thing, flow into a building and go to the speaker's desk and kick their feet up on the chair and take things as though it belonged to them and the result being people losing their lives. It was horrific and terrible. And I know in, in, in my mind, immediately, I'm saying, these people need to be brought to justice, right? Is that what you were thinking? Every one of these people needs to be ca captured, put on trial, and justice needs to come. Because there's no place in a civilized culture for that kind of lawlessness. And for that kind of rebellion. 
And I don't care what your political affiliation is, right, left, in the middle, somewhere. It doesn't matter what your ideology is. It's never right to be lawless. It's, as a Christian, we can't stand for lawlessness. God is a God of order and truth. He's a God of law. He's defined what's right and what's wrong. And we're to live what's right and we're to expect what's right of others. And if a culture is going to have any sort of civility, it has to be a culture of lawfulness. Running wild and destroying things and flaunting the law and, and rejecting the God-given authorities that have been placed above us is unacceptable whether you do it in Washington or whether you do it in Portland or whether you do it in Charleston or whether you do it anywhere else. I'm sure justice will come. Those wheels are already turning. But I reflect on that only enough to say that it's easy for me to look at that kind of, a, that kind of lawlessness and to be outraged. It's easy for me to do that from the comfort of my home. What's harder is to look in the mirror and to come to terms with the reality that the seeds of that very same kind of lawless rebellion resides in my own heart. And the fact of the matter is, I haven't busted into the Capitol building, but what I've done is far worse. I've committed acts of lawlessness and rebellion against the God who created me. That's not just a, a crime against a temporal kingdom or a nation. That's a cosmic crime against the creator of the universe. The Bible says that, captures that by saying all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes me and that includes you. That's not just little sin. That's cosmic lawlessness and rebellion against God. And the Bible says the wages of that kind of lawlessness is eternal death. It declares that God would be completely just and killing me right this moment and condemning me to an eternal hell. That's what justice would look like for me. And that's what justice would look like for you. Make no mistake about it, my friends. What Zechariah and Elizabeth needed was God's mercy. But what you and I need, equally, maybe worse, is God's mercy. Let me just tell you this real quickly. You don't want justice from God. You don't want justice from God. You want his mercy. You want his mercy. And all of the Luke, what is Luke is telling us here in chapter 1 is pointing us to the fact that in the birth of Jesus Christ, God is showing mercy to his people, to the ones who have acted in absolute lawless rebellion against him, to the ones who deserve eternal punishment for their sins in hell. He is not giving them justice. He is coming to where they are in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's going to live a righteous life. And he's going to give his life on a cross where he's going to shed his own blood, paying the price for our sins that we deserve. He's going to die for our rebellion. And he's going to stand before us and he's going to say, you place your faith and your trust in me. And my sacrifice on the cross on your behalf. I'll wipe the slate clean. I'll erase the record of your rebellion and your lawlessness. 
I'll, I'll give you a, a clean slate, a fresh start. I'll show you mercy instead of justice. I'll adopt you into my family, make you one of my own. I'll secure eternity for you so that when your life is over, you'll be with me forever. Oh, friends, our God is a God who blesses, and he blesses by showing mercy. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning? Have you spent this week in outrage over the lawlessness of others and never given two seconds of thought about the lawlessness that resides in your own heart? Maybe right now is a great time to do that. Maybe right now is a good time to be quiet for a moment. Not for nine months. Just for a moment. And to reflect on the mercy of God. Let's pray. Oh God, you are a marvelous God who does things beyond our wildest imagination. Even in our most lucid moments, we only see a, a tiny slice of what's going on in the big picture. We're limited in our thoughts, we're limited in our vision, we're limited in our understanding, but you know all things. And you're moving all of human history towards the consummation of your redemptive plan. And everything in our lives, just like for Zechariah and Elizabeth, every joy and every pain that comes into our life has a role and has a place in your plan of redemption. And we confess we don't know at any given moment what that plan ultimately is in all of its detail, but you know all things and you call us to trust you and to believe and to obey. The reality is, Lord, we can all identify with Zechariah. We know what it is to be confronted with your word and to doubt it. We know what it is to be confronted with your truth and to disobey it. But we thank you that you're a God who loves us enough to bring discipline into our world, to give us some time to think that we might be drawn back to you. We thank you, God, above all, that you're a God who's merciful, who does not give to us what we deserve, who instead, when the fullness of time came, sent your only begotten Son into the world that he might take the penalty of death for us. That by believing in him, we might have eternal life. Our sins forgiven. A reconciled relationship with you. Lord, I pray if there are those in the room this morning who have never come to terms with that by placing their faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would draw them to yourself in these quiet moments. Help us to see ourselves as we truly are before you. We thank you, O oh God, that you're a God of mercy. Cause us to respond today as you see fit by your spirit. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.